Welcome to episode 10 of Stonewall Spotlight. This episode will feature all about AIDS, past, present, and future. Marcus, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mackenzie. I'm just so excited about our 10th anniversary episode. I know. I can't believe it's already already here. And yeah. we just had another anniversary, the Stonewall in Riot's 50 years. Our most popular episode yet over... Um, 800 uh, listens from that one so far. We're so excited and happy for all of our listeners for sticking with us and and uh, really taking our content and giving us the ability to reach audiences we've never really been able to reach before. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who volunteered with uh, the Pride marches over the month of June. From everything I saw in social media and online, it just looked fantastic. It did look amazing, and especially World Pride in New York City. I know. I had some friends that went... And uh, our very own Ryan Basham, shout out. Right, shout out Ms. Basham. It was so much fun this past weekend. I think I heard that there were like three million people that showed up. Unbelievable. But we have a really, really exciting episode for everyone today. Like Mackenzie said, our episode this month is called AIDS Past, Present, and Future. And I got to sit down with some of leaders out there that are on the forefront of the AIDS epidemic, one being Mayor John D'Amico of West Hollywood and also Phil Wilson. So uh, I think we should just get into those interviews, shall we, Mackenzie? Let's do that. Here is my interview with the founder of the Black AIDS Foundation, Phil Wilson. I am here with Mr. Phil Wilson. Wilson has served as Director of Public Policy for AIDS Project Los Angeles, the nation's second largest AIDS service organization. He interacted with federal, state, and local governments helping to draft legislation that would increase public funding for AIDS-related research, education, and support services, and would affect national public policy on AIDS and HIV disease. Wilson is also the former AIDS coordinator for the city of Los Angeles. In that capacity, he was responsible for implementing, monitoring, and supervising AIDS policy and for directing the city's AIDS residential education, awareness, and residential assistance programs. He also hosted a monthly cable television show and oversaw workplace training for 65,000 city employees. I'm sitting with Phil right now. Thank you so much for being on Stonewall Spotlight. I'm glad to be here. It's just such an honor to uh, have you on the show and have you talk on AIDS uh, past, present, and future because you are one of the pioneers. So we'll get right into the questions. Okay. All right. Fabulous. So you founded the Black AIDS Institute, the only national HIV AIDS think tank in the United States that focused exclusively on black communities. Please share with our listeners what you saw and heard that led you to the creation of the organization. Well, you know, basically we created the Black AIDS Institute because the data said that black people were disproportionately impacted by HIV and AIDS no matter how you looked at it through the lens of gender or sexual orientation or gender identity or social economic level or level of education or age or region of the country where you live. Now, black people bared and continue to bear the brunt of the HIV AIDS epidemic in America. Yet black people weren't receiving the brunt of the attention or the brunt of the resources and black communities were not being mobilized to respond to the HIV AIDS epidemic on either a local or regional or national level. And so we wanted to create uh, a, a place, a space that focused on exclusively 
you know, exclusively on black communities in an unapologetic way. In mm-hmm. fact, the motto of the Black AIDS Institute is our people, our problem, our solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, the mission statement is to end the AIDS epidemic in black communities by engaging and mobilizing black institutions, leaders, individuals, and in efforts to confront HIV and AIDS. Um, and one of the primary things that the Institute does is to provide mobilization and advocacy from a uniquely and unapologetic black point of view. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and, and I think it's so important because I don't think a lot of people knew how disproportionately it affected the black community up until probably your work. Well, not only you know, has AIDS, does AIDS and HIV disproportionately impact black communities, that's been true from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I personally looked at, you know, broke out the da- data based on de- demographic information was doing the Noah and LaRouche campaign here in California. And even as early as then, which was, I believe, 1985, 86, mm-hmm. black people represented 25% of the HIV AIDS epidemic annually. Best. We only represent 10 to 12% of the U.S. population. But as far back as 1985, 1986, we represented you know, 25% of folks who are newly infected or folks that are living with HIV and AIDS. And even among women, you know, as early as the, you know, early 80s, now over 50% of women impacted by HIV and AIDS were black women. So the epidemic was all has always mm-hmm. negatively disproportionately impacted black people. Uh, and quite frankly, I believe some of the challenges that we face in addressing the HIV AIDS epidemic is the mischaracterization of HIV and AIDS from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, the disease was mischaracterized as a white gay disease. Right. Uh, and that actually created you know, an environment that I think we're still recovering from today. So. You know, it amplified homophobia. Now, it demonized you no know, gay men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it said to other communities, you don't have to worry about this. And so on every front, you know, it really derailed much of our efforts in the early days of the epidemic. And it wasn't even based on any type of analytic data. It wasn't based on any research. It was just based on prejudice homophobia or, or, or racism. It, was, it was based on those things. But quite frankly, not only was it not based on... The, on those things, there was data from the very beginning that actually exposed the true demographics of the epidemic. Mm. And so one of the things that I have worked on since beginning the fight against HIV and AIDS at the very, very beginning of the epidemic is at least to try to tell the true and whole Mm -hmm. story of the epidemic, to talk about how the epidemic actually impacts all of us uh, and all of us know significantly that HIV has no respect of person. It doesn't really care if you're gay or straight or bi or trans, Mm -hmm. um, doesn't Mm -hmm. care if you're black or white or uh, Latino or Asian, doesn't care if you're young or old or rich or poor. It really doesn't care. And so our response to the epidemic has to be as inclusive as the virus is. Absolutely. I completely agree. So there's a generational difference in the information and remembrance of HIV AIDS. Uh, Many of our listeners don't remember a time before that. Uh, what can you share with them about your experiences in the early days of your diagnosis and the history? Well, you know, it's funny that the AIDS epidemic you know, is now approaching 40 years. And so not only are there people who do not remember a time when AIDS was not there, there are people 
who do not remember a time when people were dying, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. large numbers from AIDS, mm-hmm. you know. And so for me, I got involved in the epidemic in the very, very early days for a simple reason. And it's one of the mobilization themes I talk about yet today, that it was personal. Mm-hmm. You know, my friends were getting sick um, and dying, and I knew I had to do something. In the very, very, very beginning, you know, like many people, I did not know or understand the magnitude of the epidemic. Mm -hmm. Like many people, I didn't understand actually the racial dynamics of the epidemic. What I knew is that my friends were getting sick uh, and they were dying. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe that somehow there was some sort of racial protector Mm-hmm. No. Right. You know <laughs> that that no. if no clearly people were getting infected through sexual contact, mm-hmm. and I felt like if people were if anybody was getting infected through sexual contact, then that really created an environment where all of us were going to be vulnerable, and that got me started. You no, know, in the early days, you no. Know, um, it's got to be personal. Well, sometimes it was, it was very personal. You know? yeah. and and I started keeping track of my friends who died and and I kept track of them until I I reached like 250 people uh, in my, oh my personal goodness. telephone book when we kept personal written telephone books which is something mm-hmm. something else that people don't know mm-hmm. used and to happen digital now. and and so um um, that's at the point where I, I guess I stopped counting in that regard. But it was all personal, and I think that the most political, political, the, the most powerful political activism is personal because politics is all personal. It's personal. At the end of the day, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and affects affects your family, affects everybody. And like you said, uh, it has no discrimination. <laughs> the disease does not perpetuates, and and really, that's something that I think is going to be. A, f- a really important factor on the future of the disease is the education to our younger people because there's there's just so little of it. Um, and one of the challenges I think that we have to deal with today is that we think and talk about HIV too often today in historical terms. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe, believe that at some point in time that will be appropriate, mm-hmm. uh, but we're not there yet. No. Literally, there are people who are getting infected as we speak. Mm-hmm. As your listeners listen to this conversation, there is someone uh, in the world, in the country, no, in the city of Los Angeles that is getting infected this moment. Some of those people actually will seek treatment and have access to treatment. Some of those people will not. You know, there's someone who is getting infected. There's someone who's getting sick. uh, And sadly, there continues to be people who are dying from this, from the disease. And until that is no longer the case, we need to talk about HIV and AIDS in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because it still exists. It's still taking lives. And it's, it will continue to do that until we recognize that it's an ongoing fight, ongoing fight. You retired from the Black AIDS Institute. You've traveled internationally for HIV AIDS. You've written books, articles, and you've now been honored by many organizations uh, and even named this year's Grand Marshal of the LA Pride Parade. So what's next? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know uh, what's what's next. You know... um, I am still in the beginning of this transition. I just retired a few months ago and I'm trying to reassess my life, trying to reassess, you know, what 
I believe that there will be a next chapter. I don't think that I am emotionally and mentally ready to say that I'm completely done, but I don't know exactly what I'll do next. I, I anticipate that I will be, I will continue to be involved in HIV and AIDS in some way. You know, I made a pledge at the beginning of the epidemic that I would be involved until it's over mm-hmm. and it's not over yet. So mm-hmm. I will continue to play, you know, a role, you know, to the degree that there are skills that I have that might be useful and there are people who are interested in accessing those those tools or those experiences. Um, but I also plan or think that there may be some other things that um, I'll use this time to focus on or to think about. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I, I think you deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been a long ride, but uh, it's just been, your work has been really profound and uh, our community um, is where it's at today because of it. Thank you. Um, if, if there's one message you can send out to the young people that are listening, we have a lot of young people that listen here that might not know the severity of the situation. If there's one message you can take home with them, what would that be? I think the message that I, that I would hope that young people could hear is or understands how powerful they are. You know, uh, that you know, young people have the power to protect themselves. Young people have the, the power to protect each other. Uh, they have the power to um, change the world. Now, and, and, and if I were speaking to a young per- person or when I speak to young people, I'll tell them, don't let anyone tell you differently. Now, the truth of the matter is that you know, on my last birthday, I turned 63. I was infected with HIV when I was 23. I was diagnosed with HIV when I was 27. Um, My doctors did not expect me to live to be 30 years old, Mm -hmm. and now I'm 63 years old. And some of the work, some of the organizations that I started and I founded, I did that before I was 30 years old, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when older people challenge know, kind of the um, agency, if you will, of young people, I try to remind them, you know, particularly in the HIV space and the LGBTQ space, you know, and even in you know, spaces like the women's movement and the civil rights movement and the black liberation movement, all of those movements, all of that kind of activism, you know, in many ways, the only people who change the world, you know, are young people. Martin Luther King was barely 30 years old when mm-hmm. you know, he began his activism in the civil rights movement. So... Um, I would say celebrate you know, your power, but also understand there's a responsibility that comes with that, that not only can you change the world, you have a responsibility to change the world, and you have to be held accountable for what you do or don't do. Um, and and at, at some point in time, we all are going to be asked the questions, you know, you know no, did you pay the price of the ticket for the life you have? You know, and I think that's something that I think about a lot, that what is the price of the ticket for the life that I have? Hmm. Well, to our entire uh, community, extremely valuable. We can't put a price on it. Thank you so much, Phil Wilson, for being on Stonewall Spotlight. Thank you. I am Phil Wilson, and I am Stonewall. 
here's the interview that Marcus got to do with West Hollywood Mayor John D'Amico. A resident of West Hollywood for more than 25 years, Mayor John D'Amico says his love of West Hollywood has only grown with time. For more than 20 years, Mayor D'Amico has participated in city leadership as a member of advisory boards and commissions, and for the past several years as a member of the city council. He is helping shape the city we are all becoming. As an architect and projects manager, Mayor D'Amico has more than 20 years of experience in large-scale project planning management at UCLA, ABC, the Walt Disney Studios, and the affordable housing developer, Los Angeles Housing Partnership. At LAHP, he was responsible for overseeing the renovation and construction of well over 300 affordable housing units. Formerly, Mayor D'Amico was the co-director of policy and planning at AIDS Project Los Angeles. Mayor D'Amico holds, holds two master degrees, one in architecture and urban planning from the University of Houston and the other in aesthetics and politics from the California Institute of the Arts. Mayor D'Amico met his husband, Keith Rand, in West Hollywood and registered as domestic partners in 1992 at West Hollywood City Hall and were married in August 2008, where we are sitting right now. And we uh, welcome Mayor D'Amico to Stonewall Spotlight. Thank you for being on the show, Mayor. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. We're just so honored to have you, and uh, especially on this really uh, impactful episode where we're going to be speaking about um, AIDS, uh, past, present, and future, which is a really important issue in in your city. Yes, for sure. And uh, for me, uh, as a human being living in the 21st century and having been born in the 20th century and grown up in the time of AIDS, um, I think, uh, first of all, Uh, How nice that you're um, taking the time and investing uh, in this topic. Um, I think it's often easy now, easier now, perhaps too easy to um, skip over AIDS when discussing uh, the LGBT community and specifically the gay and trans community. I think communities, I think there is is, uh, the long... Uh, complicated uh, future history of the epidemic is in front of us, and we have a lot more work to do. And um, I think, I think our city, the city of West Hollywood, is committed to that work. Um, I'm guessing your other guest, Phil Wilson, who committed his life to that work, will have a lot to say about it as well. Um, but uh, for me, I, I just think. Um, that any opportunity we have to slow down the talking stream and insert uh, important uh, points about the, the past history of AIDS and the future history of AIDS is a, is a good amount of time to take and a good, and a good uh, thing to do. And thank you for taking the time. It's, it's really important. And, and you've, you've been here. You've seen it all, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I have my own history with HIV. I was uh, diagnosed HIV positive in 1988 um, at the LA Free Clinic. And um, it's been a long uh, 31 years since 1988. Um, And remarkably, I'm alive and uh, healthy and living to tell. But of course... um, in some way, the history of AIDS is about those who are not alive and the sacrifices they made and the good work they did. 
And uh, even the history of AIDS is about people who um, did no good work and were really just rotten. Mm -hmm. You know, I can uh, uh, think of Roy Cohn, for example, and others who uh, who, uh, did no service uh, in the time of AIDS, but whose history and the history of of their lives and the history of this disease uh, played out in a quite different way. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where our conversation goes. Absolutely. So let's take a step back a minute. Uh, most of our listeners probably are familiar with West Hollywood, but for those who aren't, uh, what would you like them to know about your city? Our city is the place where people come to invent their lives. You know, adults move to West Hollywood. And they move here on purpose, and they come with a purpose, and by and large, they uh, live authentic lives, and they invent themselves, and um, that's what West Hollywood really is, I think, for the vast majority of people who live here. Mm. Um, Whether you're uh, an immigrant from the former Soviet Union or Russian-speaking country or a 22-year-old college graduate who left your your state university (laughs) and moved out west, or, um, you know, anything in between and anyone in between. Um, It's gotten more and more complicated to move into West Hollywood, but I think our commitment to adventure and free space and public space has meant that... uh, a larger subset of the larger world can come to West Hollywood, even if it's just to spend the night or a couple of hours. Um, you know, uh, the trans community has an incredible presence here in West Hollywood. The uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual community, of course, has a has a place here. But so does the rock and roll community and the billboard culture and the design community and the foodie community and uh, the workout community. There are more gyms and yoga studios in West Hollywood (laughs) than in any other two square miles in Los Angeles County. And so the sort of invent your life and live authentically is really what West Hollywood is all about. Fantastic. And I live downtown now, but I had the opportunity to live in uh, West Hollywood for a few years. And I definitely felt that. Uh, it's, it's a city unlike none other. It's uh, known as probably one of the best-run cities in America and, and a, a beacon of hope for the rest of America, we'd like to, we'd like to think, right? Yeah, I mean, I was just sworn in as the mayor. And as uh, you, you, know, you might have heard or I can tell you, you know, I, I'm playing off the idea that everyone's the mayor that every single resident of West Hollywood has something to teach the rest of the world Mm. about living authentically and about creating the world you want to live in and uh, being present and uh, making the world a better place. And that's what this mayor does. And my guess is, you know, that's what all 35,700 mayors in West Hollywood are doing. (laughs) A lot of mayors. That's a lot of mayors. (laughs) Absolutely. But I feel that the city has been extremely welcoming to all, all individuals. And and one being, of course, people that contracted um, HIV and and ended up with AIDS. Uh, And in 2014, West Hollywood residents uh, living with HIV represented 7% of the city's population or one in 14 residents, which is pretty significant um, within such a small city, I would say. Uh, Among male residents, in particular, 13%, so uh, one in eight individuals are living with HIV. So 2,500 residents living with HIV AIDS and approximately 1.9 square miles. What 
special challenges does that represent for you as mayor and for the city of West Hollywood? Well, I think um, our commitment, uh, my colleague John Duran and I are two of what we believe are maybe five HIV positive uh, elected officials who are out about it in the country. And uh, we believe that it's important to... um, talk about policies that help people uh, stay HIV negative and to get people who are HIV positive into treatment and to stay in treatment. And uh, once they're in treatment, uh, then they're no longer infectious. And so I think uh, the policy that John and I and our colleagues adopted, uh, an HIV zero policy, which is to reduce the uh, level of HIV in our community to zero. It's fantastic. And uh, we've been quite successful uh, uh, working towards reducing the number of new infections and uh, keeping people who are HIV positive uh, in treatment, going to their doctors and uh, uh, remaining uh, non-infectious. Now, uh, there are are complications to that. Um, We have... uh, uh, a, a very uh, rich uh, nightlife here in West Hollywood, where people come and go. And if you look at the county uh, morbidity and mortality reports around where new infections happen, they pretty much happen along Santa Monica Boulevard to the 101 through Hollywood. Sure. Uh, down the 101 towards downtown and then across uh, the 110 freeway through uh, southern Los Angeles. I think the African-American community, the Latino community, the gay community, uh, we all have to continue to uh, moving in the right direction to continue to lower the HIV infection rates throughout L.A. County uh, in order for one part of the county to succeed, we all have to succeed together. And I, and certainly the commitment is there with the county, uh, our our, our um, nonprofits who are working alongside uh, the county and along with us, um, d- doing HIV prevention work and uh, HIV care work. Um, but but I think you know generally. Um, things are very much heading in the right direction. We have um, a very strong policy around PrEP, mm-hmm. uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Amazing and, breakthrough uh, drug for Absolutely, for and, and making sure that people are uh, connected to service providers in Los Angeles County and certainly right here in West Hollywood, and even post-exposure prophylaxis uh, through the center and through some other providers. So I think... If any of your listeners are in a position where they think they might be at risk at HIV, uh, 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 being infected with HIV, there are there are um, countless ways to get involved in the system with almost no barriers. Cost should not be a barrier. Medical care should not be a barrier. Uh, there shouldn't be any question around stigma. Um, certainly all those things mm-hmm. come to mind when people think about getting care, but we're working as hard as we can to keep those things uh, out of the stream and out of the way of people to getting getting into care. This is really incredible. The, a city that actually takes issues for you know seriously and actually has things for their citizens uh, to to actually keep them safe and healthy. That's that really is the model for how a city government should be run. I, I can't disagree. I mean, you know, I I. 
I would argue that West Hollywood is, uh, you know, maybe two of the healthiest square miles in all of Los Angeles County, maybe in all of California. I mean, we are really committed up and down uh, uh, the list of um, health uh, cues that we that we make sure that people have access to food and affordable housing, clean water, uh, that they can they can have uh, medical care. Um, Whatever that is, what, mm-hmm. what, whatever category of human being you find yourself and you define yourself as, I think our city is committed to making sure that you can be healthy and live healthy here in West Hollywood. Incredible. And I think with, with a lot of the new um, findings when it comes to treatment, there's a way that we can actually have a pathway to this incredible program that you have here, the HIV Zero Strategic Plan that you talked about before. Uh how long is that going to take? And, and I know that recently there were uh, studies that came out that said, you know, if you are undetectable, uh, that you cannot spread the, uh, uh, you know, the virus to anybody else. And that effectively could help get us to zero. What, what do you think that that realistically looks like for, for us here in West Hollywood? Well, I'm optimistic that we will get to a point um, at which... Uh, th- the infection rate will be very, very low. But I also want to return you to the fact that, um, you know, there's a there's a measles problem mm-hmm. in Los Angeles County in right. 2019. There are other, you know, <laughs> huge you know, that problems. People that could be- who have um, real education and who have mm-hmm. uh, homes and houses and two cars and families, they still don't use available medical care to keep themselves or, in this case, their children uh, safe and healthy. And so I think there there may never be a time when there are no new HIV infections, but there is already the time in which if you are infected, uh, there is care for you and there are ways to, to make sure that you don't uh, spread the disease any further. And I think for those of us that are HIV positive, uh, thinking back to uh, 1988 or even 1998 and in some way 2008 mm. you know that is Huge the, that is the dream come true yeah. to think you know sure I I'm HIV positive but the last thing I want to do is uh, infect somebody else and now there are actual real ways to protect people mm. um, and uh, you know certainly condoms and mm-hmm. safe sex was a big part of uh, my growing up and the and the early time of the epidemic. But I think generally uh, this bigger set of opportunities is really going to do the hard work of bringing this disease to its knees. Fantastic. It's been, it's been a long journey since the, since the 80s, since the epidemic, a long, long journey. And I think people need to understand how far we have come. Yeah, sure. And, and uh, I, think, I, think people, um, I think people do understand that. And, and yet I want, to, I want to put in a plug for letting people off the hook if they don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think... Um, That's what we're here for, there's, right? Yeah, there's plenty <laughs> about um, things that went on in the 50s and the 60s that I have no memory of because I didn't live then mm-hmm. and no understanding of. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think it's always the responsibility of young people to thank old people for their hard work. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think but one of the things I say a lot is um, if you if 
if, if I listened to people that were 55 when I was 20 and did what they wanted me to do, mm-hmm. this would be a messed up world. Yeah, it'd be very different. And so I'm not asking young people to, to thank me or to do what I want them to do. I want them to invent the world they want to live in mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and really do it and step mm-hmm. up. And, you know, and, if, and if I'm in the way, move me out of the way. Because uh, they, young people will inherit this earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not particularly happy with the work that people 55 and older have done. Sure. Uh, we've done a lot of really great stuff, but I think we've messed up in terms of climate change and in terms of sort of the political nature of our country. But I'm hopeful that young people will, will take that on. Absolutely. In in big numbers, and if I can help, I will happily help uh, move the country in that direction, move the world in that direction. That's greatly appreciated. And speaking of of that, and to, and to wrap us up today, which uh, has been a really fantastic conversation with you, Mr. Mayor. Um, you've lived in West Hollywood for twenty years now. Uh, it's where you met Keith. Uh, your husband. It's arguably the model city for LGBTQ plus inclusion and acceptance to, to get a little bit more specific. But this is an, an easy time for our community. It's extremely easy, actually, uh, as you know. What, what is it like to lead West Hollywood in this current national political environment? Well, I, I, think, I think our best... Uh, our, our most strategic weapon is to live authentically here in West Hollywood, mm-hmm. to show ourselves and the world that the kinds of things that we believe in, the policies that we pursue, the ways in which we look at, think about, spend time with, interact with people is really um, to... Uh, something to be proud of and something to be happy about and something that other communities could learn, could learn Mm -hmm. from. I mean, I, I, I hear about watch on TV, read on Twitter, listen to on the radio, the kinds of ways in which people are consciously dividing themselves up. Uh, And it's, it's really surprising Mm-hmm. And yes. um, and sad, and I think um, an abuse of the sort of humanness that all of us are, and it doesn't feel like it's present. It feels like it's um, you know it's a kind of yearning for a for for, for a world that shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so I I just I just think. You know, I see West Hollywood. I think about this Pride Month that we have ahead of us, Mm -hmm. and I think this is exactly what we do best, Mm -hmm. which is uh, put render visible for the entire world who we are as a city and who we are as a community and how our government can support the community in all of its richness and all of its fullness. And nobody's left out. Everybody gets a chance to be quote in the parade Mm -hmm. and for me that's that's the magic of being an elected official in west hollywood it's the beauty of sitting in this mayor's chair once in a while for a year being able to you know with 
immense amounts of pride say, yeah, I'm the mayor of West Hollywood. It's an extraordinary, an extraordinary honor. Well, thank you so much for all your work. Uh, John D'Amico, mayor of West Hollywood, thank you so much for being on Stonewall Spotlight. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I am Mayor John D'Amico, and I am Stonewall. Well, that about does it for this episode of Stonewall Spotlight. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, we always appreciate our listeners tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Stonewall Spotlight. We'd also like to thank the Stonewall Democratic Club for bringing us together and making this possible. Thank you to everyone on our new communications team and Jane Wishon, who helped write this episode. Marcus Levengood, our comms VP and producer, Alexandria Ellison, our PR chair, Kate Gallagher, our social media vice chair, and Chris Mayorino, our PR vice chair. I'm Mackenzie Hussman, your host and co-producer and social media chair. Thank you for listening to Stonewall Spotlight.